The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. On yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will form the flesh, from the flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers in the back. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, well, this morning, uh, we have a chance to hear from uh, a guest preacher, uh, David Delk. He is the executive pastor at Grace Church in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, father of three, one of which, one of which is our own Kyle Delk. Uh, I've known him all of three hours, but um, you're in for a treat. So would you welcome David Delk? We're going to be in Galatians chapter 6 is our scripture. If you want to go ahead and uh, turn there in your Bibles or your device. And I am grateful to be here with you again. Actually, I think we've been, we were over there twice um, in services with uh, Kyle and Jess. And then I, I think I've been in here twice, maybe sitting in somewhere in this area. Uh, so it's good to be back. This is a little different perspective from up here, but I'm, uh, I'm glad to be with you this morning. In 2009, I had a health scare, and uh, I was trying to rev up my exercise uh, in the wake of that. And so I got into road cycling and just kind of bought an entry-level bike just to figure out if I was going to stick with it. And so for about a year, I did, and I increased my mileage and took it pretty seriously. And so at the end of the year, I thought, you know, I probably should get a real bike. So um, I looked around, and I found a great deal on a bike that kind of had, it wasn't the, the best of everything, but it was kind of one tier below. So everything was just not top end, but the next thing down. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but um, it turns out, it's, I guess it was a nice bike. So I get this bike, and I had a young friend um, that would come over to our house, and he was very much into cycling and racing and knew a lot about bikes. And so when I showed him my new bike, he looked at it, and he, he looked down, and he goes, man, that crank set is incredible. And I kind of followed his eyes to see what he was talking about. I don't know what a crank set. Yeah, it's a great crank set, you know, or whatever, you know. Um, but the reality was, as I began to ride that bike, I realized that when people saw that bike and the level of the components on that bike, it set an expectation for them about me, right? First of all, they'd ask me all kinds of questions about bikes and cycling or whatever. I'd be like, I don't know, I just ride, you know? And then they would expect me to be fast. I'd be like, what's the slowest group ride today? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and so I couldn't live up to the ex expectations that, that 
the level of bicycle that I had kind of set for me. And when we look at the book of Galatians, it's an extended explanation and meditation on the gospel. And if you haven't read the whole book of Galatians at once recently, I would encourage you to do that. It'll take you about 20, 25 minutes. Um, and it's very, very uh, moving when you read it all together. And we obviously don't have time to go through the whole thing. But in chapter 5, as Paul builds his argument, he basically gets to chapter 5 to say, we have the freedom in Christ to live by the Spirit and not under the law. It's a huge theme of the whole book. And of course, that chapter closes with the fruit of the Spirit, right? These, these evidence of what the Spirit produces in our lives. And so we come to chapter 6, and in chapter 6, the verses we read, Paul talks about the shared responsibilities that we have to live in, in gospel community with one another and to complete the mission that Christ has given us as his church. And so it's a little bit like what Paul is saying is that this gospel reality that I've told you about in chapters 1 through 5 will inevitably lead to this kind of lifestyle with one another. And so it was a little bit like the situation I was in where people looked at the bike that I had and they said, okay, well, if you've got a bike like this, then this is the way that you must ride, right? Paul's saying, if you've got a gospel like this, <coughs> and if that's a reality for you, then this is the way that you're going to live. Now, one of the problems that we face when we read this text is that we read it through the lens of our American culture and assumptions. So I'm going to invite you to, to try to take a, a second and kind of drop those away a little bit and really understand how countercultural this passage is for us. So uh, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now this is a, a you plural in chapter in verse 1. It's you all. It's a corporate obligation. We're going to see the same thing through the rest of this passage. And um, we can't do this by ourselves. We need to be in community with one another. And if you're in a situation where you've carried a burden, maybe you've had a grief, maybe you're <clears throat> dealing with uh, temptation, maybe you have been going through some kind of loss, uh, a struggle, and you've kept that to yourself, you've kind of hidden that from people, you know that how that wears on you, right? And when you finally have a chance to share it with somebody, when you can finally let somebody else enter into that with you, there's such relief. There's such uh, a sense of, of, of just, you know, hope that can come from that because we know that we were made to, 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 to be in community and relationship with one another. And the idea throughout this chapter <coughs> and the New Testament is that we can do things together that we could never do alone. So another translation of this passage says, if anyone is overcome by sin. And so Paul here is giving a very charitable um, reading of this. And if you, if you know Paul, Paul can be harsh, right, when you read the New Testament. I mean, in this book, he has already said, I hope they emasculate themselves. Pretty harsh, right? But here he says, it's, it, the picture he gives is sin chasing after someone and catching them. And so he is asking us to be empathetic and understanding towards those who are, who are, who are struggling with sin. To not be judgmental, to not blame the person. Uh, and that no matter how they got there, 
that we, are, we have the obligation to try to help restore our brother or our sister. Now, here's the problem. It is deeply un-American. This is one of those American culture things. It is deeply un-American to involve yourself in somebody else's problems, right? I mean, that's the thing. I'm an American. I can do whatever I want. And who are you to tell me what to do? And so for us to have the courage to actually, with gentleness and humility, enter into things with other people is part of what it looks like to live in gospel community. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I have a pastor who says that real discipleship happens through personal, vulnerable, and honest conversations. Personal, vulnerable, and honest conversations. What does he mean by that? Personal, that it's in a relationship. You know this person, this person knows you. That there's some trust and there's some credibility that's been created. Vulnerable conversations, that I'm not sitting up here uh, you know, in a higher plane than you are, judging you like some kind of oracle, giving wisdom from on high, that we're in this together, right? We're both peers in this. And then honest, that not only am I truthful with you, but I'm also truthful about myself, right? And that's what happens in real discipleship. I know many of you are in college. I remember when I had a, a difficult conversation for the first time with somebody that I did not think was going to go well. It was in college, and I had to think about it, and I had to think about how I was going to say it, what needed to be said, um, and guess what? It did not go well. <laughs> it did not go well. I probably did some things wrong. Uh, the person probably heard some of it in a bad way, and it took about a week, but during that week, God kind of worked things out, and we got to a place where we both came back together, and we understood what was going on, and, and we were better for it. And so we have to be a, a community that's willing to do that because Paul says we need to disciple one another. We need to restore one another. And so our first point that we see from this passage is that we want to be a community that disciples one another. Uh, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So again, this is this plural, you all share one another's burdens. It's a generalization of verse 1. It's not just when people are caught in sin, but when they're just dealing with life, the brokenness of this world, <clears throat> all the other kinds of burdens that people have, that we are supposed to come along and enter into that. Now, depending on your stage of life, this can be difficult, right? I mean, if you're in college, you got a lot of stuff going on, you got a lot of fun things to do, you got a lot of freedom. If you have toddlers or babies, infants, you're tired and waking up half the night and all that stuff. You got teenagers, they're running around everywhere. And then you get to the empty nest phase like me. And so my wife Ruthie and I are, are empty nesters, and I can tell you, for those of you that are in this or are thinking about getting there, if you think having kids is great, wait until they're gone. It is amazing. I mean, it's incredible. Like, if we clean up our house and we put the cushions on the couches and all the plates and dishes are put away and cups are put away and there's no books laying anywhere, shoes thrown around the house or whatever, when we come back, it's exactly like we left it. I know if you have toddlers, you probably can't believe that, or young children, or whatever, but it's true. It happens. It happens, right? And you know what we do after work when we get home? Exactly what we want to do. It's incredible. It's incredible. But here's the thing. You can get so comfortable in that, right? And I can remember just a couple weeks ago, we were in a, a pretty busy stretch. There was a lot going on. And so we had a night where we were going to be home, and I, I think we were trying to finish off some kind of series or something we were watching. And Ruthie's involved with a lot of folks. She's an empathetic person, has a lot of wisdom. <clears throat> and so 
she got a phone call. And I could tell from the first minute of that, hey, thanks, for the first minute of that, that, um, you know, it was going to be one of those calls, right? And so we get into it and at five minutes, you know, then we're waiting and it's 10 minutes. I'm thinking, what are we doing? Designing a nuclear weapon here? Like, I mean, come on, how hard is this? But it goes on and it goes on. And so what I'm worried about, I'm not thinking about bearing one another's burdens, right? I'm thinking about the fact that this was my one night. This was the only night. And now I just may as well get ready to go to bed because it's not, you know, we're not going to be able to do what we were planning on doing. It's easy for us to get comfortable to think about our own agenda. But look what Paul says. He says, the stakes are huge. If we do this, if we bear one another's burdens, that we fulfill, we obey the law of Christ. This is the same root word that Jesus used when he said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, right? And so it's to live out, it's to exemplify, it's to fill up the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, in John 13, 34, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And just before this, in chapter 5, Paul has said, in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So it's an other-focused life. That's the law of Christ. It's a willingness to sacrifice for the good of other people. And so we're, in, we're supposed to share each other's burdens. And so the second thing, first of all, we're supposed to be a community that disciples one another. But the second thing Paul says about a gospel community is that we serve one another. And then in uh, verse 6, uh, we're going to just go on, skip down to verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So Paul says we're supposed to share our resources inside this gospel community with the church. And this phrase, all good things, is a kind of an extreme statement. It's an overflowing generosity. It's, it's, it's uh, profligate, if I could use that word. Some of y'all are English majors at Covenant. You, you'll get that. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. You could, can you just kind of pass it down the road there and tell? Yeah, good. Um, but it's this, it's this incredible kind of generosity, right? That's almost absurd. He says every good thing, share every good thing. And so there's, there, again, this is kind of a countercultural thing for us in America. Because in America, we have these categories in our minds about how we think about religion, how we think about the church. And some people are $20 a week people, you know? Back when we used to have cash, you dropped a $20 bill in the plate when it came by, and that was kind of the way you did it. And other people are 10% people. So you figure out what you got, and you make, do a 10%, and that's your deal. And you don't really have to think about it. You don't really have to pray about it because you have this little category. And what Paul says is, no, we are supposed to share every good thing, right? We're supposed to have this radical generosity that's a prayerful, spiritual decision that we are making. And I just thought about this in my own life. Ruthie and I uh, recently <clears throat> refinanced our house with the low interest rates and the driver for that. And so I, I dealt with, you know, what, four or five companies and went through all their offers and, you know, fine print and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the reason we wanted to do that was not just to lower our payments, but we're at a stage of life with grandchildren and spread around the country that we want to be able to travel and do some things to bring our family together. And so having some more cash right now for us seems more valuable than thinking about having it, you know, 10, 15 years from now. 
And so, um, but as I thought about this message and I thought about that verse, I realized I would never even consider doing that to support my church. Like, that's just not what you do. Who would refinance their house so they could give more money to their church? But why wouldn't I think about that, right? Um, how many people decide not to have Spotify or Netflix? Now, most I know a lot of y'all just don't even know that they, they do get paid for, right? Your parents are paying for them. Just It's not a free thing. They do, somebody, somebody is paying, right? Um, so you have Spotify or Netflix, and they decide, hey, I can't do that because at $35 a month, I want to give to my church. Now, when I get a raise, maybe I'll get Spotify or Netflix. No, I mean, of course I have to have music, right? That's just part of being an American. It's part of being alive. Of course I have to be able to watch all these shows. And so we bring these cultural assumptions in, and then we try to add our spirituality on top of them rather than praying and asking God. So, for example, how many people decide to keep a five-year-old car for five more years until it's a 10-year-old car? So they can make a $15,000 gift to help a church purchase a building. Like that would be a radical step of generosity. Or maybe you take a a $750 vacation instead of a $2,500 vacation, right? So that you can intentionally invest. The gospel community, Paul says, should be one of the top financial priorities of our lives. It should be all good things that we share. And our money demonstrates our priorities. So we We disciple one another, we serve one another, and we give sacrificially for one another. And then in verses 7 and 8, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So it's a little bit confusing. What does it mean? Why is he saying God is mocked? What does he even mean by that? Well, um, let me give you an example. I helped coach my oldest son's uh, high school basketball team. And they were, they were basically good kids, but they were also teenage boys. And so, you know, every now and then, they would have this kind of arrogant streak that would come out. So I would be trying to explain to them. I often worked with the guards, and I was trying to explain to them some things to do. And every now and then, you could see it in their eyes. You could see a little smirk on their face. And, uh, you know, they would nod their heads, yes, sir, listen to you, whatever. And then they got back out on the court, and what happened? They did exactly what they wanted to do, right? And so they were basically saying uh, that, you know, that's great, old man, what you have to say, but I'm going to do what I want to do. And it is a kind of mocking. It's mocking their expertise. It's mocking your authority. It's mocking your knowledge. It's mocking your experience. And so what Paul is saying is that when we don't structure our lives to live out the reality of the gospel, to live out this gift that God has given us, this new reality that he's giving us, we are mocking him. We're making a mockery of the gift that he's given us. And here's the difference. Those guys were able to do that to me with really no consequences. I mean, one of them, as a matter of fact, is a very successful real estate uh, realtor in in Florida right now, right? Um, But here, Paul says it's not going to be that way with God. On an eternal timeline, we will reap what we sow. And so we are sowing for the future. The stakes are high, Paul says. It's part of reaping eternal life. And so we really have no middle ground. We're either sowing to the flesh. We're trying to keep our comfort, our agenda, our security, um, you know, the the, the good things of this world that we've become attached to, or we're willing to lay those things aside 
and so to the Spirit for God's glory. And so then verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not grow, give up. Doing good can be frustrating, especially in a broken and fallen world. We often wonder if it really matters. Uh, we're not appreciated the way we should be appreciated. We're not encouraged the way we should be encouraged. And so it feels like, does anybody really care? Am I really making a difference? And I love the example from church history of William Wilberforce, because in, in England, he worked for 27 years to establish, uh, abolish the slave trade, 27 years. And then after the slave trade was abolished, he worked another 26 years to abolish slavery. Imagine that, 53 years on the same subject. And that's what he did. So we're probably not going to work 53 years on something, but for us it could look like supporting somebody through a difficult recovery process. It could look like caring for a family who has a child with special needs. It could look like committing to multiple years of leading the same class in the children's ministry, persevering for one another. I think about a woman at our church um, uh, through a, uh, some circumstances related to her parents being in a senior living facility and meeting some people there. She decided to bring a ministry to that, that facility. <clears throat> and so she recruited volunteers and did the hard work of figuring out how to make it happen and built the relationships with the leadership of the, of the facility and got this ministry going. And so literally for about uh, nine years, she was the sole driving force of that ministry. Not a lot of support, not a lot of support from our church, um, but it began to, we began to see the impact of it and the need for it. And so now, five years later, we have a formal partnership with 10 facilities in the upstate of South Carolina, one for each of our congregations. There is a lead volunteer that works with each one of those facilities. We have a paid part-time staff who coordinates all of those efforts, and we have hundreds of volunteers that are in total that are going into those facilities. So think about this. What if she would have quit after eight years? Like, none of that happens, right? She persevered. And so that's another thing that we need to do. We need to disciple one another. We need to serve one another. We need to give sacrificially for one another. And then we, need to, we also need to persevere for one another. And finally, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We want to be a church that people would miss if we were gone. And it's so important that we are a blessing to those around us. <clears throat> We're going to take some, uh, any, any faithful Orthodox church, it looks like the way our culture is going, any faithful Orthodox church is going to take some unpopular stands. There are going to be some things where we're just going to have to say some, some things that maybe the culture does not love. But wouldn't it be awesome if the people see our good deeds and they see the impact we're having on our community and they're seeing the blessing we are to the people around us, that they have to say, hey, even though I don't really agree with them on this, man, it's pretty amazing what they're doing, what they're doing in our city, what they're doing in our community. We need to solve real problems for real people to show that the gospel is real and that it matters. And so we disciple one another, we serve one another, we give sacrificially for one another, we persevere for one another, and we bless one another and the world. We become a living expression of what the kingdom of God looks like. And so I talked to Jared, and some of y'all know his family's got COVID going around, so he's kind of busy, five kids, all of that. 
But I said, hey, if you have 10 minutes, can you send me some examples of how these things are happening in restoration? Southside. And he, so he said, it won't even take me 10 minutes. He said, it didn't take him 10 minutes. So this is what he sent. When one of our members was the victim of a violent crime this week, another one of our members hasn't left the hospital or the side of the family. When someone went through a divorce, one of our members drove to their house late at night to sit with them in their pain. When we were told that we would be difficult for us to ever buy this building, the care team alone came up with commitments of $500,000. When CSM needed basketballs and footballs and asked us for help, we gave more than they asked for. One woman at our church often informs the staff about a need and has begun to work on meeting it before the staff even finds out what's going on. When one of our couples was struggling deeply in their marriage, several people swarmed around them, and now the couple is in a sweet and healthy place. One person in our church who often has real doubts about his own faith regularly brings friends to church. One man who is very concerned about COVID comes and sets up every week, even if he personally can't stay for worship. And so this, this is a reality in the life of your church. This is happening. But the question is, even though that's happening in the church, what about you? What does it look like for you? Are you living this out in your life? And one of the things that we see in this kind of American cultural setting is that we find ways to live with the tension of that we know the gospel should be bigger than it is, and yet it's not really having that kind of impact in our life. So I, let me give you this practical example. Go back to that bicycle. <clears throat> I dealt with questions about my bicycle, and people were surprised I didn't know things, and I, you know, type of writing I did or whatever. And then I had to replace a couple of those high-end components on that bicycle after a number of years. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. So you know what I did? I went out and bought a low-end bike, and that's what I ride right now. And now, whenever I ride with other people, no one asks me any questions about cycling. No one asks, says anything about my bicycle, right? I mean, it never even comes up. And so what happened? I lowered the expectation. And I think for a lot of us, what's happened is we've kind of lowered the, re the expectation or the reality of the gospel in our lives. Jesus has become something that we kind of add to an already pretty good life. I mean, our family's okay, our kids are doing well, got a decent job, got a nice place to live, have a good car, go on nice vacations, and I have Jesus. It's kind of, it's great, kind of like a little bow that wraps everything up. And of course, the gospel is meant to be so much more than that. The other thing we can do, not just lower the beauty and the, and the, and the amazing awesomeness of the gospel, but we can also, we can become tempted and seduced by things in this world. So we become more concerned about our career, more concerned about getting that next promotion, more concerned about that house that we want to move into, more concerned about getting our kids into a certain school or having them go to a certain college or uh, you know, being able to take a certain kind of vacation or pursue a certain hobby, whatever it is. And so our attraction to this world begins to increase, right? And the, and the beauty of the gospel comes down. And so we lose that tension and we, we, don't even have the, we don't even feel the reality of the fact that we're not living out the kind of community that Paul talks about in this passage. And think about how many people think about church in America. You know, if you, most people would say, most Christians probably, if they're honest, would say that their most important commitments in their life would be their job, their wife, kids, maybe their personal relationship with God, right? That would kind of be up here. And then 
Uh, many of them might say the next level would be what school our kids are going to go to, um, what house we live in, you know, what church we go to. Maybe that makes it to that level, right? Uh, but a lot of people would probably be even lower than that. It might be more like um, where are we going to go on vacation? Um, should my child play travel ball or not? Um, you know, what kind of car should I be driving? Oh, and what kind of church, what, what church are we going to go to, right? We kind of relegate it way down the list. But that's a lie that we're adopting from our American culture because the reality is that the kingdom of God is contextualized in a local church according to the scriptures. Like this is the place that God is at work. This is the place that we're supposed to invest our lives. These are the people that we're supposed to give ourselves away to, right? That we're supposed to sacrifice for, that we're supposed to be in community with, that we're supposed to disciple and serve and love. And so God is not saving us for a private spiritual experience or so that we can have a nice little relationship with our friends and our families. He's transforming us so that we can be part of this glorious mission that he's given us through the church. And look at the swing that we see in this passage. It's pretty amazing. Paul says you can do two things with this. On the one hand, if you live out this life of the Spirit, if you let the gospel take root in your life, you let the Spirit energize you, you can fulfill the law of Christ. It's a pretty amazing high that he gives us there. But look at the low that he says. He says if you sow to the flesh, if you minimize the reality of this gospel and what the Spirit has done, you could be mocking God. It's a pretty big swing that he offers us. And so I would just ask you, if you had to be honest about the last six months of your life, would you say you've been more living along the lines of fulfilling the law of Christ? Or you've been more along the lines of mocking God? That's a question that we all need to answer. <clears throat> we have to be willing to lay aside our comfort, lay aside our control of our life, lay aside our agenda, our safety, our security, because the gospel compels us to live a life of risk and sacrifice for others. So what does it look like to live in gospel community? It means that we structure our lives so that our highest priority above our own comfort or even our own well-being is to disciple, to serve, to give, to persevere in doing good, and to bless the world. We're going to have an opportunity now to take communion and as we do that, it's a, it's a great time for us to be reminded just how amazing this gospel is, that the God of the universe grew a body, that he came as a baby, a helpless baby, that he suffered everything that we suffered, that he endured a painful, agonizing death on the cross, and not just the physical torment of that, but that he also bore the reality of our sins in his body if we put our faith and trust in him. And he did that, because he wanted us to know that this world is not our home, that we have a kingdom that is greater than this that is coming, and that he invites us into real life, the life that this is only a pale reflection of, real life through his blood, through his body, and through his resurrection. And so my prayer is that we would be able to experience that together and that we would be able to live in a way that brings God glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you speak to us, for the way that your, um, that your word challenges us, moves us, makes us uh, evaluate. We pray that you would help us to see clearly that we would not just uh, live with the assumptions and presuppositions that we came with, 
But Holy Spirit, would you challenge us and do what we can't do for ourselves? Would you show us the truth? Would you help us to see if we're living out this kind of gospel community, this gospel reality? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you are the risen Lord, that you demand um, our life and our attention and our love and our focus. And we pray that you just help us to understand what that looks like, the freedom and the joy that comes uh, when the gospel finds full flourishing in our hearts and our minds. And so, Holy Spirit, we know that this is your power that works within us. And we pray that you would do this for your glory in Jesus' name. And we pray that you just help us to understand what that looks like, the freedom and the joy that comes uh, when the gospel finds full flourishing in our hearts and our minds. And so, Holy Spirit, we know that this is your power that works within us. And we pray that you would do this for your glory in Jesus' name.